Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. Studies have shown that gender disparities exist in medicine regarding salary, career advancement, and resource allocation. In addition to career advancement barriers, women in medicine have also been shown to disproportionately experience sexual harassment by patients and colleagues. Today we're discussing a new paper in AEM Education and Training entitled Qualitative Description of Sexual Harassment and Discrimination of Women in Emergency Medicine, Giving the Numbers a Voice. We have authors Dr. Kristen Mazo and Dr. Jillian Theobald here to discuss it. Dr. Mazo is an emergency medicine and critical care physician in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She is currently the ICU medical director for Ascension Columbia St. Mary's Hospital in Wisconsin, directing their neurocardiovascular, med surge, and burn ICUs. Dr. Theobald is an associate professor of emergency medicine and medical toxicology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She was born, raised, and trained in Chicago, and we are thrilled to have them both with us today. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Meso. It's nice to have you. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Theobald, welcome to you too. Thanks. I'm really glad to be discussing this work. Um, I'm a woman in emergency medicine, and your study and its findings don't surprise me. Uh, but let's set the stage for everyone who's listening and talk about what we know regarding gender disparities in medicine in general and within emergency medicine. So let's start with salary advancement and resource allocation, and then we're going to get into a little bit more of the meat of what you're studying. Yeah, so um, it's pretty, it's been pretty clear and not much has changed over the last, I would say, 10 to 20 years. Um, we know that women earn 10 to 13 percent less than men, even when um, factors like hours worked and leave and other things like that are taken into consideration. It still is a salary gap. Um, they're much less likely to be considered for leadership positions to get promoted. Um, and then we know that this all happens when they're experiencing a high level of harassment. So women report feeling um, harassed or discriminated against at much higher levels than their male counterparts. And that's not only in medicine, but also in emergency medicine. Um, and so even though they, like, there's reports going back you know, 20 plus years into the mid-90s up into the early 2000s, um, where the numbers of people or women reporting this really haven't changed. Um, so it's been a pretty chronic, stable problem over the years. Um, so, um, so yeah. Okay. So let's, let's talk more specifically now about harassment of women in the medical community. So I think most women in medicine can tell you stories. I, I certainly can. Um, and I started my training in the nineties, so I got a lot of stories, but, um, but what kind of data do we, do we have on that? Uh, you're right. And that many of us have stories. Uh, but I think in general, when we look at the literature, much of the data regarding harassment of women in the medical community is really quantitative in nature. 
So you may see data or studies like 50% of women in medicine report having experienced harassment or Mm -hmm. 60% of medical students have reported such. And I agree wholeheartedly that population data is incredibly important to gain a big picture analysis, albeit a likely underreported one. Um, But one of the problems with population statistics is that it can't be applied to an individual. And so when Mm -hmm. we talk about harassment in the medical community or anywhere, really, quantitative data doesn't allow us to narrow down how that translates to to a person, to an individual. It also may not give those who haven't experienced harassment or discrimination for themselves the chance to understand it and maybe see or hear how detrimental it can be. One of the reasons that we wanted to use qualitative data in this project, and we cite it in our paper, is that there's something inherently beneficial in storytelling that allows for what's called cultural sense-making, which is basically just the process by which people make sense of and explain culturally different behaviors. Now, that doesn't mean accept or tolerate those behaviors, but it does start with hearing them, acknowledging that they exist. And in this case, hopefully narrowing down some specific themes of harassment in order for us to target ways to stop them. Great. So your study comes along to provide this qualitative assessment of harassment and discrimination experienced by female physicians in emergency medicine specifically by colleagues or supervisors. It, of course, happens with patients a great deal, but this we're focusing on colleagues and supervisors in the workplace. So my first question is, is there is there an origin story to this study, like a particular experience that led you to realize that this qualitative study needed to be done? Or was it just sort of a general, like, oh, we should do this? Yeah, I'm I, a firm believer that um, ideas for things almost always come from some personal or observed situation. Um mm-hmm or often do, I guess, uh, and this was no no different. Um, Dr. Theobald and I actually uh, were working together in the emergency department, and this was a colleague of ours who was a, a female clinician who was working one day with a senior male attending. Um, and she had mentioned to him sort of just in passing that she was going to call the patient who she was caring for, their primary care doctor, to find out just some more information. And from the way the story was reported to us, we weren't, neither of us were there at the time. She had said, the attending said to her, that's fine. Just don't talk like a woman when you call him. Oh God. And it was a, it was a very, <laughs> it was very strange. Um, whether we all heard this story at, at the time she didn't say anything. And, and even now she has never reported it or said anything to that individual or leadership within the department, but it quickly the story quickly spread through a text string uh, of those women, uh, in the, those of us in the department who I think she knew would be outraged. Um, and essentially, that's what happened. Many of us were outraged. Many were not surprised. Others, I think, tried to figure out why someone would say something so offensive, but also something so useless and not beneficial mm. to the care or what, what the question at hand was. But I think what it really came down to was this particular female clinician. Um, She didn't feel comfortable confronting him. She didn't feel comfortable reporting him or having any of us report him. And so I started to think, I bet this happens all the time. We should ask. Um, And that's sort of how this all came about. I think we also wanted to reframe, like people I think have gotten to the point where it's been talked about enough that they are like, well, that's no longer happening Mm -hmm. or that I'm not the one doing it. It's not me. And I think that, you know, giving people a space to tell their stories and saying it out loud, it's, it's a lot more powerful than just quantitate or yeah, quantitating things. And Mm -hmm. so that was also a little bit of uh, motivation for us to do the study was that we 
we wanted people to know, like, this is what's being said to your colleagues day after day. And, and it's, it's not surprising to us, and it shouldn't be surprising to you. And so mm-hmm. that was also another motivating factor behind it as well. Excellent. So tell me a little bit about the study design and uh, your methods here. So um, we uh, wanted to get as many um, responses as possible. And so we decided to distribute the survey that we crafted electronically. Um, And we did Mm -hmm. that through Twitter, email, um, and Facebook. We thought, well, maybe there's some people who are not on social media. And so we accessed alumni lists of email addresses and asked people to forward them on um, because we didn't want to skew the results to, um, you know, being generational and people who were maybe not utilizing those online platforms. Mm. Um, We sort of monitored the responses and closed the survey down about eight weeks after it was made available. Um, And we had gotten approximately almost a little under 1,200 responses. Um, And um, we then went through and analyzed uh, all of the responses um, and some of the demographics from the people that had responded to the survey. Can you tell me a little bit about what questions you did ask in the survey, other than like the demographics and things, but what what did you ask? Sure. So beyond the basic demographics, level of training, the type of practice environment, um, essentially the survey was two questions. Uh, It asked, as a woman practicing in emergency medicine, have you ever felt harassed, diminished, uncomfortable, or discriminated against by a male colleague or supervisor at work? based on a sexual comment or innuendo that was said to you or about you. And then we had a second question that said, as a woman practicing in emergency medicine, have you ever felt harassed, diminished, uncomfortable, or discriminated against by a male colleague or supervisor at work based on an unwanted sexual act or advance towards you? And then we left blank area in the survey. um, And we left up to uh, two shared experiences that people could could write of any length um, that was completely optional. And this was really what we felt was probably the most important part um, for us of, of the data was really this qualitative component to it. But we did ask those two uh, initial questions as well. Okay. We did ask when, when those experiences happened, mm-hmm. the years, um, and then the state, because we kind of wanted to show that it's still happening now uh, and happening all over. United States. So it's not just a regional problem. Definitely not. Okay. Well, you're going to tell us about that, I think. Um, (laughs) So uh, can you tell me a little bit about, so that, so among those, um, I think it was 1144 that you wound up analyzing of all of those respondents, can you tell me a little bit more about their characteristics and demographics? So the average age of the respondents was about 38. Um, we had respondents from anywhere from 25 years all the way up to 69 years old. 81% were white. Half of them worked in the community and about half of them worked in academics. And then 25% of the respondents had advanced degrees in addition to their MDs. So it was a pretty good, robust sample of respondents. Okay. So then the reported experiences were divided into themes. And what themes did you initially start with? And then what themes became evident to you as you looked at your results? 
So we had initially um, sort of came up with themes uh, based on our own experiences and some prior papers that we had read. And the ones that we came up with were experiences that related to being pregnant or taking maternity leave, um, people inappropriately touching women um, or people doing an unwanted sexual advance, like, you know, asking people out or um, coming on to them. uh, We're also looking at pumping. So women leaving the department to go pump while on shift Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. um, lack of advancement based on gender and then things that happen at conferences or social events associated with work. Um, The interesting thing that we... um, were, were the themes that came out in in uh, our review of all of the different experiences. Uh, one of them was patronizing comments or behavior where women mm-hmm. just were diminished or dismissed based on their gender. Comments on physical appearance too, about what women are wearing or how they look or other people uh, in the you know work area, but the person had overheard those comments overtly sexual comments. And then uh, where women are mistaken for nurses, we had a few number of experiences shared about that. And then where women in the department were asked to do pelvic exams or where patients were saved for hours for the woman coming on shift to either do Mm -hmm. sexual assault exams or pelvic exams on them. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a lot of comments that or experiences shared that did not fit into any one of those categories neatly. And if uh, Dr. Mesa and I disagreed on where they belonged, we put them in an other category. Uh, mm. And then there were actually some that were, we labeled positive where mm-hmm. people were like, I don't have anything to share. I haven't experienced anything or people who were very critical of the survey uh, we also put that in this positive category <laughs> where they've had <laughs> positive experiences and didn't really find or feel that they had anything to share. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your results um, and how women in emergency medicine might feel harassed, diminished, uncomfortable, or discriminated against by male supervisors or colleagues at work. So um, you can lay it out theme by theme or however you think it would be best for us to digest it. Sure. So one thing that had come up uh, since we had started analyzing the data uh, and somebody had mentioned was the possibility that not defining what it meant to be diminished or discriminated against could be a, a limitation. Um, and, mm. and I can certainly understand where, where they're coming from with that. That was um, somewhat intentional on our part in the sense that because we felt that the the important part of the survey really to us, or the most important part was the ability to document your perception of your experience and, and what that experience meant to you um, in a qualitative sense, we didn't want to have to exclude people because they didn't fit into a definition. Um, and so when we narrowed down the 473 experiences, responses that people left into those 12 general themes that the Dr. Theobald just mentioned, um, they really then sat into these three overarching categories of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and gender discrimination. And um, overwhelmingly, you know, the top three were this patronizing comments or behaviors that, that we saw. And there are examples in the paper where 
again, I think what women actually reported and what they said really highlights. Um, and the other thing that we found that happened about 16 and a half percent of the time. What we found mm -hmm. since then is as we've listed these examples in the paper, otherwise people have said, gosh, you know, when I initially either filled out your survey or I was thinking about it, I didn't even consider those things that were said to mm -hmm. me. So what I think it would be very interesting to do is to, if we could at some point, if we knew who had filled out this survey, resent it back out to them um, or even to others and whether or not that triggers more responses. Um, because I think a lot of people just didn't think about those things that were said to other people until they heard them, until they read them um, as things that may have even happened to them that maybe they just blew off or, or didn't think about or didn't think was important enough to mention or write down even on paper in the survey. So by far the top three were patronizing comments or behavior. Um, certainly comments about pregnancy and maternity leave uh, were, were a close second. Comments about physical experience or, or the other category um, were, were the top three. And then unfortunately, um, right in the middle were inappropriate physical contact and unwanted sexual advances, which I think for me, was maybe surprising. Um, it hadn't occurred to me the, the degree to which these physical uh, things were occurring to women unwanted and unsolicited. Um, just based on the second question that we asked in the survey, 22.3% of women had reported that they had been uh, experienced an unwanted sexual advance uh, at work and uh, by a colleague or a supervisor. And so that to me was probably one of the more surprising. I, even for myself, thought that being mistaken for a nurse or asked to do a pelvic exam would have been something that was a lot more common um, or at least just stated. That may have been that those are just examples of things that we all sort of blow off and didn't think to write mm -hmm. down, but mm -hmm. they were much lower on the list of percentage for themes than, than even the unwanted sexual advances or comments. 22% should get people's attention. Yeah, we thought so too. Um, are there any limitations of this study that you want to highlight? So there's a couple of them. One of them was that when we phrased the questions about um, have you experienced harassment or discrimination, we said by a male supervisor. Um, and I think that was a mistake in our on our part is that we should have just said a supervisor because I think that there is some um, things happening, or I've heard of lots of stories of women supervisors or uh, leaders that have done things to women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that we were um, a little short-sighted in where we did that. And like, like Dr. Meso said, we didn't um, define the discrimination or, uh, you know, harassment. And, and I think that that would have maybe been a um, maybe it might have changed the results a little bit. Although I think those definitions, at least um, as we know them, are, are pretty apparent. Um, the other part too, and I think this um, is what, what Dr. Meso touched on as well, is that the, the self-reporting of this, I think a lot of times people, when you're given a space to provide an experience, you think of some of the most traumatic or the most awful. And I think we lose sight then of some of the day-to-day -day stuff that happens repeatedly. Uh, and and I think uh, you become a little numb to that over time too. And so I, I think that 
we gathered some of the most horrific and awful things that happen. And those are, those are incredibly important, but I think it, it doesn't often shed light on what happens on the day to day. Um, and it's also self-reporting of these experiences. Like we don't have confirmation. Um, and, and, and although that is a limitation that we can't say like, yes, every single experience happened. Um, I think it's still super important because it's, it's the women that are the physicians that experience this and it's their perception of how that experience affected them um, and how they perceived it. And that's a very important story to tell, um, especially since these are, you know, a significant portion of the workforce and the people and our colleagues that we're working alongside. So um, I think that there were some limitations, but I think that if you really look at that, this is more a storytelling paper <laughs> um, and the power in those stories, I think that, that that's the strength in the paper. Okay. So finally, what do you think that listeners and educators should come away from this study with? So I think that, you know, when you talk to women, in, specifically in emergency medicine, um, and we've certainly done that a lot with this paper and just in, in general because of it, this is not surprising to anyone. Um, and and I don't think that was ever our intention was to, was to do something that was necessarily surprising to those of us who already experience it. But the part that has been, I think, educational and I think beneficial are the number of people who perhaps have never experienced this. And, and in our case, it's been mostly men who maybe have not experienced this, who have really gained, um, I think have been incredibly supportive and really gained an appreciation for understanding how widespread this problem is, how many years uh, it has gone on for and continues to go on for. Um, and that the hope being that they recognize that this is problematic for their colleagues and that they choose to hopefully do something about it when they hear it or see it. I think from an educator standpoint or supervisor standpoint, my hope, uh, whether <laughs> this happens or not, is that there's an effort to not make assumptions about your residents or your physicians' colleagues' lives when considering them for positions. I would love to see us start to be more objective when choosing people for positions. You know, I'm a firm believer that if there's a job, then there should be a job description. And, you know, if there's a, a set of requirements for someone applying for chief resident, there should be a list of here's the time requirement, these are the characteristics of the person we want for the job. Do you think you can do them? As opposed to what I think happens now, um, and not just for in residency, but certainly even for any leadership position in a job, um, is this very subjective assigning capability to a person based on their personal life or, or some perceived perception of them. Well, this job is going to take a lot of time. and I know you have two kids at home, so I'm not sure you'd be able to do it. Um, so getting away from that and really just sticking to you know, an objective description of a job or an assignment um, for me would be, it would be incredibly uh, powerful and beneficial. And then I think being able to take these themes and say, okay, well, based on our one study and our small, you know, example or a small sample, here are some really common themes. Is there a way that we can take that back to medical schools and say, and start earlier in the curriculum, focusing on how to prevent these things, knowing now that it's not just harassment and discrimination occur, but specifically patronizing behavior or specifically comments about pregnancy and maternity leave 
um, and having a way to sort of narrow that focus, uh, I think could be very potentially beneficial. I, I think it would too. So thank you so much for doing this work um, and telling these stories. I think that that is probably the only way that will make any kind of a change. Uh, and I can't wait to see what you two do next. <laughs> Me either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Take it out. Yeah. I will say my, one of my, um, former fellowship attendings, when this paper came out, emailed me and said he was going to make it required reading for their residency. And I, and I, I think that's a great thing, but I also want it to be required reading for the leadership. Because <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. I think, you know, so it, what, what I think that the thing that was the most interesting for me was people's responses to the paper, or when we presented it at SAEM, like people, there was a lot of colleagues of mine that were just shocked mm -hmm. that this stuff is happening or that it still happens. And one of the best was that uh, somebody outside of emergency medicine had said, you know, women in emergency medicine aren't some of the meekest people in the hospital. If we're talking about specialties and the type of personality that they attract, that uh, emergency medicine doesn't attract, you know, in general, people who are, you know, you know, compliant and meek and, and, and the fact that this is happening even in, in that specialty and to this degree is, can you imagine what's happening in others and, and to what degree? And so I think that that's something to take home too, is that we, we asked this in just of emergency medicine, but what's actually happening in some of the other specialties. So I think for me, at least the importance in this is I think I would like to see leaders, not just med students and residents reading it too. Totally agree. So thank you very much. Here's to leaders reading this article um, or maybe listening to this podcast <laughs> uh, and then doing a little self-analysis. That's always good. Um, again, thank you for your time. It was great talking to both of you and I'm really glad you did this study. Thanks for listening to this AEM Education and Training Podcast. Be sure to read the full text of this article, available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to all our AEM podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.